0: Welcome to Live from AUA 2022, Highlights in Advanced Prostate Cancer. We strive to offer outstanding educational courses and greatly appreciate your evaluations and general feedback so that we are able to continuously improve our programs. We thank you for joining us. Before we get started, we'd like to go over a few items. I'd like to extend a special thank you to our course director, Dr. Stephen Borgian, for his tremendous efforts to plan this activity. We thank you for your dedication and commitment to urologic education. Thank you as well to our distinguished faculty, Drs. Leonard Gomella, David Girard, and Alicia Morgans for their time, talent, and expertise. The AUA is accredited by the ACCME and designates this enduring activity for a maximum of one AMA PRA category one credit. The AUA is not accredited to offer credit to participants who are not MDs or DOs, However, the AUA will issue documentation of participation that states that the activity was certified for AMA PRA Category 1 credit. All persons in a position to control the content of an AUA educational activity are required to disclose any relevant financial relationships with any commercial interest. Please visit AUA University to view Faculty, Education Council, and COI review workgroup disclosures. The AUA would like to thank Estelis. AstraZeneca, Merck & Company, Inc., and Pfizer, Inc., for providing independent educational grants in support of this activity. This activity is meant to be educational in nature and in some instances reflects the opinions of the presenters. The information does not guarantee accuracy of claims submitted. Please verify the accuracy of individual medical claims submitted and please follow individual insurer's rules. Thank you for attending live from AUA 2022. I will now turn the program over to Dr. Borgian.
1: Well, thank you for joining us today at live from AUA 2022 to talk about the management of advanced prostate cancer. My name is Steve Borgian from Mayo Clinic, and I'm honored to be able to moderate this quite timely discussion. I'm here today with Dr. Leonard Gamella, who is the Bernard W. Goodwin Professor of Prostate Cancer and Chairman of the Department of Urology at the Sydney Kimmel Medical College. Dr. Camella is involved in basic science and clinical translational research, developing new diagnostic tests and treatments for prostate, bladder, and kidney cancer through the Sydney Camel Cancer Center, where he served as the co-leader of the Biology of Prostate Cancer Program. In fact, in 1992, Dr. Camella's team was the first to use molecular techniques to detect circulating prostate cancer micrometastasis, the first report of a prostate cancer liquid biopsy. Dr. Gumella has also led the urology effort in 2017 and 2019 Philadelphia Prostate Cancer Consensus Conference that provided the first multidisciplinary guidance on the use of genetic testing in prostate cancer. I'm also joined by Dr. Alicia Morgans, who is a genitourinary medical oncologist and the medical director of the Adult Survivorship Program at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. She joined the team at Dana-Farber to elevate survivorship and therapeutic research for genitourinary cancer survivors and others. She is a clinician and physician investigator specializing in investigation of complications of systemic therapy for prostate cancer survivors. Her work has included study of skeletal, cardiovascular, diabetic, and cognitive complications of prostate cancer survivorship, as well as treatment decision making in the metastatic prostate cancer setting. In addition, she's been awarded several federal and foundation grants to investigate the cognitive effects of hormonal treatments in in advanced prostate cancer and treatment decision making in men with metastatic disease. She has nationally recognized expertise in patient-reported outcomes and quality of life studies in men with advanced prostate cancer. I'm also joined by Dr. David Girard, who is a tenured professor, vice chair for the Department of Urology and associate director for the University of Wisconsin Carbone Cancer Center. He currently serves on the prostate cancer guidelines for both the National Cancer Network, Comprehensive Cancer Network, or NCCN, as well as the AUA. Dr. Girard's clinical work concentrates on advanced urologic oncology and improving cancer detection and outcomes. He serves as the urology co-PI on the paradigm shifting charted trial of docetaxel and androgen deprivation therapy for metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer and on other trials in chemo prevention and advanced prostate cancer management. He has an active basic science and translational research supported by NIH, NIH R01 funding and the Department of Defense Prostate Cancer Research Programs examining epigenetic factors underlying prostate cancer progression. Recent studies, including recognition that androgen removal, a common treatment in advanced prostate cancer, when combined with agents targeting unique epigenetic and metabolic changes, can improve prostate cancer outcomes. He's published numerous articles, book chapters, and abstracts in the field of prostate cancer. So welcome, Dr. Scamella, Morgans, and Gerard. Looking forward to a lively discussion here today. To put this scope of problem in a little bit of context, prostate cancer represents the most commonly diagnosed solid organ malignancy for men in the United States and remains the second leading cause of our cancer deaths. Deaths from prostate cancer typically result from progression to metastatic disease and subsequent castration resistance. Moreover, the incidence of patients presenting with newly diagnosed hormone-sensitive prostate cancer has been increasing in recent years. On the flip side, notably, advanced prostate cancer represents one of the most active areas of investigation in GU malignancies, with exciting developments in recent years in the areas of imaging for accurate staging, therapies with enhanced efficacy, as well as a greater understanding for the role for genetic testing in these patients, including to help guide potential treatments. So let's start by focusing on the 2020 updated AUA astro guidelines for advanced prostate cancer. Dr. Gerard, you were a member of this guidelines panel and were, in fact, co-course director for an advanced prostate cancer course, which took place just before the start of the AUA with Dr. Mike Cookson. Can you explain for us how the updated guidelines are structured and, in particular, what that new structure represents relative to the old prior index patient-based guideline that was organized previously?
2: Yeah, thanks, Dr. Borzin. So, the previous iteration of the guidelines had focused on uh, defining uh, numerous patient categories that maybe are not completely relevant uh, with a lot of the changes in next-generation imaging, neurotherapeutic indications. It realized, you know, this is a rapidly changing area. And in response to that, we've uh, reorganized uh, these guidelines in a more progression-focused uh, approach uh, using uh, biochemical recurrence uh, as one space, uh, metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, Uh, and then M0 and metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer.
1: So as you mentioned, the updated guidelines, in fact, begin with the disease state of biochemical recurrence. So can you speak to changes in the guidelines um, for these particular patients?
2: One thing that was uh, striking that the the guidelines really emphasized was in the biochemical um, uh, recurrence space, really delaying the initiation of hormone therapy, Uh, This is in part related to the expanding recognition of cumulative side effects of ADT. And, you know, for those patients that, again, uh, are not willing to to defer therapy after exhaustion of local uh, options, uh, you know, intermittent androgen deprivation therapy is an option or clinical trials. I'd say another... um, um, change has been sort of newer options for androgen deprivation therapy the expansion of gnrh antagonists including an oral agent uh, imaging there's certainly a lot of a lot of the exciting changes that are going on and we'll talk a little bit more about that but certainly uh, i think a focus is uh, obviously treatment needs to be refined to not only optimize longevity but also minimize treatment relates related side effects and that's something as we move into the, the guidelines further to think about.
1: Yeah, so so just to expand on what you what you had mentioned about the imaging, um, that's an area that that continues to develop. And even after the guidelines were updated, we've now seen FDA approval of PSMA based um, imaging, both for initial staging and for evaluation of patients with uh, recurrence. At the same time, we have concerns uh, that have been raised about cost and access um, for these imaging modalities even after the FDA approval. So it's you know anticipated that these types of new imaging modalities in terms of how they're utilized and integrated into clinical practice is gonna require continued scrutiny. Um, so for example, those patients who've received what we might consider to be maximal local therapy, previous surgery, perhaps salvage radiotherapy, um, how do you envision um, now our advanced or next generation imaging helping to guide therapy among such patients?
2: Yes, certainly the question is whether a bone scan, whether conventional imaging with a CT scan can be replaced uh, by a PSMA PET imaging. You know, certainly there is uh, a lot of evidence to suggest that it has an increased um, sensitivity with regard to detection. But as one moves further into the disease, realize that PSMA PET may not necessarily detect all cancer. And so certainly in the castration resistant state, we need to be more careful. But early on for staging, I, I think that uh, there's real hope that this may be a one, uh, one approach uh, imaging uh, modality that we could utilize. And certainly, Dr. Morgan's uh, thoughts on that?
3: Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think that imaging has really disrupted this whole space. It helps it helps us in so many ways, especially in these high-risk patients. But it can be stressful. And I know Dr. Gamella, I think, is going to talk about it in the M zero castration resistance state, where it can be it can be concerning because we could potentially um, if we're not thinking about it properly, not provide the systemic treatments in that setting based on the imaging that we know actually can prolong survival. So we really, I think, have to just be very cognizant. And as you said, over time, and as the disease progresses, there can be such a heterogeneity that we can be fooled into thinking that there's maybe less disease than we realize um, just because it's not PSMA positive anymore.
1: So that that's sort of the perfect lead into to kind of walking through these these guidelines to the next disease stage that the guidelines advise on, which, as, as you mentioned, Dr. Morgans, is is what we call M0 or non-metastatic CRPC. And, and in this area, we've seen really <clears throat> a rapid expansion of approved therapeutic options. So can you outline for us um, the new systemic therapies that are approved for the management of patients w- with what we classify as M0 CRPC and discuss what their mechanism of action is?
3: Of course. So we have three options for the treatment of men with m zero or non-metastatic CRPC: Um, enzalutamide, apalutamide, and darolutamide. They were all tested in large phase three international randomized controlled trials that were clearly registration trials that led to their approval. All patients included in these studies had non-metastatic disease by what we typically refer to as standard or conventional imaging, which would be CTs or MRIs and bone scans, not not PSMA or other forms of PET imaging. Patients had a rising PSA with a castrate level of testosterone, um, and they had no evidence of this metastatic disease, but clearly had castrate levels of, of T and a rising PSA. These three drugs prolonged metastasis-free survival by about two years for each of them. So very consistent. And all three, despite crossover in the control arms, two active agents in most situations actually prolonged survival. And so what this shows is that these drugs, apalutamide, enzalutamide, and darolutamide, improve survival as well as maintaining quality of life and, and delaying metastasis-free survival with that earlier initiation. And all three, to the point about mechanism of action, are androgen receptor antagonists, but they are these newer generation drugs, pretty well tolerated, uh, I would say generally not substantially more effects than ADT alone for most patients, and clearly have these benefits.
1: Okay, so now you have um, three, three agents, same mechanism of action and you described you know quite similar efficacy um, how do you select um, you know in tomorrow's clinic um, which of these do, that we use and 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 why would you do that
3: well this is definitely the million dollar question but I, I would say that probably uh, mm-hmm. we choose different different treatments based on the patient in many cases sometimes that's directed by the patient's insurance uh, because this can be something that really does you know, tell us what we need to do in clinic, and and we don't always have control. So there's that. We also, I think, have to think about drug-drug interactions. So different drugs are going to have different degrees of drug-drug interactions, and the particular patient that you're seeing may have a drug that may not be compatible with with something else that they're taking. So, So we really do need to consider that. Um, There, there is some question about uh, whether, or not necessarily question, but there's some notation that enzalutamide does have a level of hypertension that we would want to be aware of. And and I think all of these drugs, we want to optimize our cardiovascular reversible risk factors anyway, because these patients are on ADT. But but there have been some cases of press, which is a, a concerning issue with enzalutamide. Very rare, but something to be aware of. And so high blood pressure is something to think about. Patients who already have thyroid issues or or who may be super sensitive to rash may not necessarily um, be the best candidates for apalutamide. So just really thinking about um, how we want to match the patient with the right drug. But there's no one size fits all for these for these
1: agents. That's very helpful, thank you. So so Dr. Camello, we just we talked a little bit of, a few minutes ago about the expansion of imaging modalities, next generation imaging, um, and um, you know the how do you foresee um, that being integrated into this particular disease disease state of non-metastatic CRPC. And, and I, I, I suppose the, the, the parallel question to that is that at this time, where we have certain of the medications Dr. Morgan's talked about that might be approved for M0 CRPC, but not, might not yet be approved for MCRPC, um, are we going to get information that might render a patient ineligible for a medication that they would have otherwise been eligible for?
4: So, uh, th- this is a very, very interesting area. You know, we were all excited about these these medications that got approved because as a urologist, when we had a patient with a rising PSA, negative imaging, and castrate levels of testosterone, we would just sort of sit and wring our hands and wait for something bad to happen before we moved to the next level of treatment. Well, certainly now, the ability to identify uh, disease at much, much earlier stages because of PSMA scan, I think, is really starting to have a major impact. And I think this M0 play, space, which we were very excited about, uh, is going to start to get smaller. Uh, again, as Dr. Morgans mentioned, it was standard imaging that was done when these agents were approved. Uh, we're now going to have to see what what's going to happen now when negative uh, standard imaging, but a PSMA scan is able to pick up a metastasis at so a PSA as low as 0.2 or 0.5. I think this M0 space is going to start to shrink dramatically, and we're going to have to rethink now earlier treatment of metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So again, this M zero space is going to get smaller and smaller, thanks to uh, you know, thanks to
2: these new imaging studies. So yeah, Mr. certainly. So please
3: on. go ahead, Doctor Jarred.
2: Yeah, certainly, it's going to blur blur our ability to think about. And more systemic versus uh, perhaps localized since many of these trials were were done uh, obviously in the pre-psma pet era yeah i guess one question is is moving forward do we need to repeat all these studies uh, in order to, to get the correct answers uh, especially when it comes to a lot of these um, uh, localized modalities
3: yeah, I think that's that's a big question, and it's it's not a it's a good question to ask, but I, I imagine it's not going to be practical to repeat all these studies. So, uh, and especially with so many new agents that are coming out, and so much that we want to do in terms of moving closer to um, cure for these patients. So, repeating some of these studies, I don't know that that will be tenable. But I would encourage everyone to think about the fact that there actually was a study that looked at the correlation of PSMA PET and positivity in this patient population. And it was essentially using the Spartan criteria, which are actually quite similar to RMS and Prosper, uh, to define a patient population that was non metastatic CRPC based on conventional imaging, and then used PSMA PET in these, in these individuals and found that 98% had PSMA PET identifiable lesions. So these patients will most likely have a PSMA PET identifiable lesion, but I don't think that means that we should say, Well, they're no longer non-metastatic. They still fit the. They are. They are non. they, They are metastatic by PSMA PET, but they still fit the criteria of treatment by these three registrational trials. So I still believe that intensification of therapy and getting that quality of life benefit and the overall survival benefit, if not the MFS benefit, is worth it for the population. So even though they may have metastatic disease by PSMA PET, I do think it's important to intensify therapy.
1: Yeah. So so it's really interesting how imaging almost coming to help shape and define a disease state, uh, which is something quite unique, I think, that we're seeing here. So let's move to um, now talk about patients with what we would consider to be hormone-sensitive metastatic disease. So um, in, in, in these patients, Dr. Joy, the guidelines now introduce a potential role for prostate radiation, which is local therapy in select patients with metastatic disease. Can you discuss which patients you would recommend this for?
2: So it really emphasizes, uh, and again, in this metastatic hormone-sensitive space, that uh, the burden of disease and location are critical in helping identify those patients that might benefit from local therapy. So there were two trials that were done. Uh, one was uh, Stampede, uh, in which patients with uh, metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer in low, uh, uh, were randomized uh, to getting radiation uh, plus ADT or ADT alone. And if you looked at the overall population, there was really no benefit uh, as far as overall survival. But stratifying using the charting criteria of, of, of volume of cancer that is uh, less than or equal to four metastases, those patients that got um, with this low volume, low burden of disease, actually there was an improvement in overall survival of these patients. So, uh, and this has been also um, Validated in in a trial called Horrid, uh, which looked at less than five bone Mets, uh, and again demonstrated a benefit uh, with regard to overall survival. So I think in conclusion, you know this kind of uh, analysis really demonstrates that in patients with uh, low metastatic burdens, that radiation therapy is an option uh, for these types of selected patients.
1: Yeah, again, something new and 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 interesting to have as part of the guidelines based on. Level one evidence that's come out since the last update.
2: Um, yeah. Steve, one more thing I just mentioned is that, sure. you know, we all question whether, as being surgeons, you know, is this something that, that might be uh, applied to patients uh, for surgery? And certainly, this neoadjuvant uh, space is, is I think, something that's very exciting. Uh, there was a recent uh, trial that reported out the Punch trial, uh, randomizing patients to getting uh, dositaxal chemotherapy for six courses. Uh, plus ADT versus ADT alone, and then surgery. Uh, that trial uh, demonstrated that there was an improvement in metastatic-free uh, survival, um, slight improvements uh, in overall survival. But obviously, uh, a lot of a lot of therapy, and may not be the entire answer. It's not been widely adopted uh, in at many centers with regard to management of this approach, but. Certainly, I think this is an area that we're all very eager to learn more about, a lot of research going on, and something uh, that we'll be able to offer our patients in the future.
1: Yeah, thanks for highlighting that. I think it does really emphasize the importance of, of, of putting patients you know, with this NT on clinical trials um, so that we can get answers and, and help us guide future in the future therapy. So thanks, uh, Dr. Ward, for bringing that forward. Um, Dr. Morgans, you were part of an instructional course on Friday of the AUA meeting, which provided a case-based approach to the changing face of advanced prostate cancer. So in this this, um, metastatic hormone-sensitive disease state, we now have several um, approved systemic therapy options, and they seem to be broadly classified based on their mechanism as chemotherapy or androgen pathway-directed therapy. How do you advise treatment between um, these these therapies with various mechanisms and and from a practical standpoint how do you advise on on a teamwork or collaborative approach when we when when these patients are often jointly being treated with oral therapies by urologists and medical oncologists with, with systemic chemotherapy
3: yeah, that, you know, that course was a lot of fun. And one of the reasons it was so much fun is because we did have a multidisciplinary team coming together. And that, to your point about, you know, how do we do that practically, is, is actually one of the most fun parts of, of working in GU oncology, I think. We need to have good communication, we need to have partners identified, and we need to be able to work together. I, I think, you know, having people's cell phone numbers and texting or calling or, of course, sending emails is going to be critical multidisciplinary care teams that can either do virtual or 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 true uh in person geographically locate, localized and co-located clinics is really, really important. But at a minimum, we need to be able to reach out and phone a friend because it is an incredibly collaborative space with the patients being identified in many cases by urologists, but then a, a team approach sometimes being uh, optimal for for the systemic treatment of these patients with metastatic disease and, and sometimes even bringing in, of course, radiation oncology for treatment of the primary and low volume metastatic hormone sensitive disease. So when I think about systemic therapy, I think that, you know, the number one take-home point should be that ADT alone is no longer and hasn't been for several years the standard of care. This is not an acceptable form of treatment for the majority of our patients. There are patients who are frail, who are very elderly with a very limited life expectancy, but other than those individuals, this is not the best approach. Um, So how do we do combination therapies? For patients who are chemo-fit, we're actually thinking about using ADT, chemotherapy and potentially maintenance therapy with abiraterone or darolutamide at this point with a triplet approach. This is very new, has not made it into the guidelines, but is something that does have level one evidence backing it up um, with the phase three ARISONS trial recently reported at GeoASCO and published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, So for patients who are chemo fit, uh, I think that's an important approach to consider if you are thinking about chemotherapy. For patients who are not chemo fit or for patients who have low volume, metastatic disease, ADT and an AR-directed signaling inhibitor uh, is really, I think, the best way to go, particularly if the patient is older, more frail, has multiple comorbidities that may contribute to that chemo-unfit status. And that can be done by a urologist. Um, and, and certainly, I, I commend and support that approach. But I would ensure that bone health is being uh, assessed and that the other genetic testing and other factors that need to be identified and cared for in this new newly diagnosed metastatic population are, are considered, whether you're in a urology clinic or a medical oncology clinic.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd say one of the highlights of the meeting here was they pr- uh, reported out on the uh, side effects uh, from the ARISONS trial, uh, looking at uh, sort of quality of life issues. And it certainly looks, uh, looks like these patients are tolerating that treatment intensification very, uh, very well. And this move towards triplet therapy, I think we're going to need even more discussion uh, among our multidisciplinary groups as far as those patients that might fit this criteria.
1: Thanks to you both for that. So it, it does sound, Dr. Morgan, it's like a lot of this is is based on volume of disease and, and patient comorbidity factors and, and performance status.
3: It is the one other factor to consider if you are considering kind of adopting that triplet approach is de novo metastatic status. I think that's also identified, been identified as a um, more, a poorer prognostic factor. And those patients do seem to benefit from, from that in the piece one trial, all patients had to have de novo metastatic status and a fair amount of the RSN's population also was de novo.
1: Really interesting and, and helpful. Thank you. So um, Dr. Camella, you are faculty at both Dr. Gerard's advanced prostate cancer course on Thursday, and then Dr. Todd Morgan's course on on specifically genetic testing in prostate cancer yesterday, which focused on understanding the role of, of genetic testing um, in prostate cancer. Um, let's start just for, with some commonly used terminology that I think may remain an area of confusion for many. Can you speak to the terms germline and somatic testing?
4: Great, Steve. Thank you. Uh, and I just want to comment about uh, Dr. Morgan's multidisciplinary concept. Uh, she just published a book on multidisciplinary care for, uh, for patients with GU malignancies. And I can't underscore that enough, uh, that this is so important today. Uh, in the early 90s, urology just took care of patients with ADT. Then we had chemotherapy. Then we had nuclear medicine. Now we have genomic and genetic testing. So we really do need a lot of expertise today in managing our uh, uh, on our patients, so so thanks for, uh, for bringing up this issue of, of germline versus somatic testing. I think it's very important for urologists to sort of now get up to speed with genetic and genomic testing. Certainly medical oncology is far ahead of us in the field of breast cancer, for example. Uh, on how to use genetic uh, and somatic testing. But it's really only been over the last three to four years that urology has been brought into this world of understanding germline and somatic testing. So essentially, germline testing is testing elements that you've inherited from your parents. They're in every cell in your body if there is a mutation, except for your red blood cells. Somatic testing is looking at genetic alterations that are unique within the tumor. I sort of describe it as the wild west of the tumor. Yes, you may have some germline inherited mutated genes in that tumor, but the tumor may have a completely different profile of of alterations. And in fact, if you look at the development of our drugs over the last five to seven years, in all of medicine, including prostate cancer, it has been derived mostly by interrogating tumors, looking at hundreds and hundreds of different genomic changes in the tumor, and then seeing which drug would be most applicable. So both genetic and genomic testing, uh, excuse me, genetic uh, germline and somatic genetic testing are important today in the management in
1: particular for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So, so, what are the criteria to determine if if um, genetic testing should be undertaken in the patient with newly diagnosed prostate cancer? So we now have
4: guideline recommendations uh, in this, both from the NCCN and and from AUA based guidelines. Essentially today, Any man who presents with metastatic prostate cancer, either hormone-sensitive or metastatic cancer-resistant prostate cancer, should undergo germline testing to see if there is an inherited mutation that might be actionable uh, now or in the future. Now, we always have to remember that while we talk a lot about genetic germline inherited mutations in prostate cancer, in reality, it's only in about maybe 15 to 20% of our patients because 80% of patients with prostate cancer still have sporadic prostate cancer, no family history, no specific germline identifiable abnormality. However, it is critical today in that fifteen to 20% of patients with the germline mutation that we know about it and allow us to give them second and third line therapy based on that germline
1: alteration, that mutated gene. So, Two sort of follow up questions to that. One one would be, you know, for for clinicians again in clinic, is there a preferred platform for the genetic testing that we that we like to recommend, or or how do you think about that?
4: So when we do germline testing, it needs to be done by a buccal swab or by a peripheral blood test. Very often in our uh, in our world, my. Uh, My genetic counselors actually give people scope mouthwash. They have a swish and swirl in their mouth and spit into a little cup. They find that gives a higher yield of buccal cells to do the germline testing. However, when it comes to the actual platform, there are many commercial uh, genetic testing companies out there that are very reliable, very well known in our field. And my advice is just go with one company, get comfortable with it, see how it works, and... uh, The other important thing to mention is that these companies do offer us resources for our patients uh, to understand uh, this genetic testing world. And in fact, many of our commercial partners, if you don't have a genetic counselor within your cancer center or within your practice area, they will offer preliminary general discussions with the patients, which I think is a wonderful thing that our uh, genetic testing partners do for patients and providers.
1: Yeah, that brings up the, the, a really important point, which is that, you know, many may not be comfortable with some of the discussions about the other implications of genetic testing for families and things like that. So in general, I know you've, again, have a, had a model multidisciplinary practice, but do you recommend that, that, that it be the urologist that obtain the genetic testing? Did, should these patients be referred to a genetic counselor for that conversation to happen? And then the genetic testing, how do we actually operationalize this?
4: Yeah, that that depends on your practice setting. Uh, you know, we're very blessed at our NCI designated cancer center. Uh, I work with Dr. Vita Geary, who has taught me everything I know about the genomic and genetic testing. We have a great team of genetic counselors at our cancer center. My personal belief is that uh, we present the concept to the patients, we give them a little information sheet, and then we allow the uh, the uh, genetic team to sort of take over and guide the patient. Because a lot has to do with not only the patient, but a concept known as cascade testing. Cascade testing is checking other members of the family, uh, and only through a detailed family tree and an understanding of the cancers that run in a family, can that be uh, can that be uh, undertaken? So at the end of the day, I think each urologist in their practice really has to look at what their local resources are, and if you're lucky enough to have a genetic counselor, my belief is. Please rely upon them. But if your practice setting doesn't have that, I think that uh, you, as a urologist, you got to do a little bit more, uh, do a little bit more work. We don't have any certification at this point, but I think you need to do a little bit more schooling on understanding why you're ordering the test, so you can efficiently
1: explain it to your patient and their family members. Yeah, that certainly makes a lot of sense. Um, so let's move now to the to the MCRPC disease state. Uh, metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. So, Dr. George, at what point in these um, patients' disease course do you typically transition care to a medical oncologist? I and mean, we've heard just a little bit about multidisciplinary clinics, but but what are the factors that enter your decision as, as to making that, that transition?
2: Yeah, I've had a, a nice time here at the meeting talking to colleagues, and I think the landscape with regard to management of advanced prostate cancer is changing a little bit. Uh, That decision, in part, I think, varies between practices. I think there are some of these large groups. Uh, There may be a colleague who's interested in focusing in this area, who's certainly capable of giving these androgen receptor pathway inhibitors, managing the side effects, the monitoring, um, treating the bone health. So they may want to delay this type of referral. Uh, Chemotherapy is certainly possible, but for uh, our medical oncology colleagues, uh, they sometimes have these systems set up for this better. Uh, you know, I, I think that with earlier intensification of therapy, uh, this triplet therapy, the since trial, that we're going to be interacting more uh, frequently with our, our colleagues from medical oncology. But certainly uh, several criteria that I, we would generally involve our medical oncology colleagues a little quicker would be rapidly rising PSA, you know, those patients with visceral metastases, bulky lymphatic disease you know these all are all signs of, of aggressive prostate cancer and certainly I'd, I'd be knocking on dr. Morgan's door much quicker in that in this kind of situation
1: thanks uh, dr George so so dr Camella now with this patient now who's developed MCRPC so if the person taking care of them um, had done what you'd recommended at the time of um, newly diagnosed metastatic hormone-sensitive disease and gotten germline testing, and um, now the patient has experienced disease progression to mCRPC. Um, should somatic testing be performed now if we have germline before? And um, you know why? And 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 then as an extension of that, if if yes, somatic testing, where should the tumor tissue come from? Should it come from a the primary or should it come from a metastatic site or both? Or how do we think about these questions?
4: So again, this is all a very, very rapidly evolving area in guidelines as well as in clinical practice. I think that to the point that we're talking about multidisciplinary care here, I mean, look at the teams that we have at this AUA meeting. You know, we've got Dr. Morgans. We had Dr. Geary. We had Dr. Sartor. We really clearly see the importance of integrating uh, metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer with our medical oncology colleagues. And to that point, this issue about somatic tumor testing versus germline testing, they are actually very complementary, because sometimes you will find alterations in the tumor that you did not find in the inherited germline. So when you do your somatic testing today, we tend to like to have fresh tissue. We like to go after a bone metastasis. We have a bone bank at, uh, uh, at Jefferson where we've uh, collected, usually it's an orthopedic. Patient who's had a uh, pathologic fracture, and we we save the uh, the tissue and undergo somatic testing. But more commonly, it would be something like a biopsiable lymph node metastasis. Um, sometimes using the original tumor can be problematic because it's very often years go by and there could be many changes. So the last thing that's really happening, uh, if you can if you can't get a lymph node metastasis biopsy or pulmonary mat or liver mat. uh, They're very, very exciting. This whole area of liquid biopsy right now, uh, it's coming down the pipe very quickly, where simply through a blood test, you can detect cell-free circulating DNA that's been shed by the tumor. And that gives you almost a real-time example of what's happening in the tumor without actually doing a biopsy of the uh, metastatic lesion. So somatic tumor testing, very important and very critical. Now, as we develop more and more new agents like pembrolizumab, for example, uh, in advanced prostate cancer is very, very dependent upon somatic alterations in the tumor.
2: Yeah, we certainly have a lot of debates about you know, biopsy, what to biopsy, uh, when to biopsy, but certainly using that approach more liberally, I think in this modern era is impro- uh, important. I've been impressed by, with some of our newer techniques uh, using MRI guidance, uh, how how our yield from bone is has improved, bone biopsy improved, and how well patients tolerate that approach. Uh, we didn't used to feel very comfortable but certainly that's one thing that's changed over the last few years.
1: So, so Dr. Morgan, just as we kind of walk through the, the, the the metastatic hormone sensitive treatment selection, different mechanisms of action. Um, can you, can you take us through, you know, first line therapy for patients who now are MCRPC? Um, what are the factors, um, just as you kind of nicely outlined for us before, what are the factors that go into treatment selection here? Um,
3: Sure. So I think remembering, of course, that we're going to try to intensify for all patients with metastatic hormone sensitive disease, our patients going are going to have been exposed to more than just ADT alone by the time they hit first line MCRPC status for most patients. Um, and they may, of course, come in through a non-metastatic CRPC uh, pathway as well, again, with intensified treatment. Because of that, it's really critical to recognize what a patient has had before and try to switch mechanism of action, particularly if that patient has had intensified therapy with an AR-targeted agent. Because a back-to-back or even uh, AR-targeted agent, chemo, AR-targeted agent, Uh, really gives us very little uh, benefit from that second AR targeted agent. In multiple phase three clinical trials where a second AR targeted agent was the control arm, if you will, the median time to progression was somewhere around two and a half to three and a half months. Um, So that's really giving us very little, even if we see a brief PSA response, we're not going to meaningfully change the trajectory of the disease for the majority of patients. So that's just really, really important. So if we're changing mechanism of action, how do we choose? Well, for asymptomatic patients, minimally symptomatic patients, maybe we think about something like CYPT. For patients who have visceral crisis, compression, something that is really dramatically uh, uh, an event that's rapidly progressive, chemotherapy is still probably the best approach. And if a patient has bone-only metastatic disease and has some symptomatology, uh, even if that's just an anemia or some mild fatigue, then radium can be an option there as well. Uh, we can't use things uh, necessarily like lutetium in that setting yet. But one other thing I should mention, this is all, of course, based on Dr. Gamela's fantastic counseling about germline and somatic testing. We might be able to use PARP inhibitors in this setting for patients with DRD uh, mutations, as well as pembrolizumab for patients who have MSI-high status. So, thinking about those uh, and ensuring that we kind of really view that entire landscape is is important for first-line mCRPC.
1: So, could you you mentioned the PARP inhibitor, um, which I know kind of melds some of what Dr. Gamella had talked about. So, so can you outline for us what specifically um, you know makes a patient. You know eligible for a PARP inhibitor when would you utilize it what should we be looking out for
3: Sure. So there are a number of mutations that make a patient eligible for treatment with olaparib. Rucaparib, it's really BRCA1 and BRCA2. Olaparib, it's BRCA1, BRCA2. ATM, PALB2, CHECK2, there's, there's actually CDK12. There's a, there's a large uh, sort of list of, of alterations. Um, I would say that the most uh, the most effective mutation to target with a PARP at this point in time still seems to be BRCA2, regardless of agent. Patients are eligible for olaparib after a progression of disease on an AR-targeted agent in combination Combination with ADT, rucaparib does require treatment with an AR-targeted agent and then a taxane. So they have slightly different indications, slightly different mutations that they're going to cover. But BRCA two is the most common alteration we're going to see in patients with prostate cancer. And so this, if, if that's what you find, you can you can use either depending on what they've been exposed to previously.
1: And 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 how about you know you you give us that that hint at lutetium, which is a new development since the. Um, guidelines were updated, but um, certainly lots talking about it. And, and I would say, you know, the newest FDA approval um, for patients with MCRPC. So what patients in particular would you consider lutetium for? And, and again, um, now we're into sort of really third line therapies. Um, how, do you, how do you base treatment selection here?
3: Sure. So patients need to be selected with a PSMA PET scan. So that's really important. And at this point, at least according to the label, that needs to be a gallium PSMA PET scan. We are expecting or hoping perhaps that that May become looser, and that PSMA PET scans of all types may be used. But that's something that is in flux as we as we talk today at this live event. Um, additionally, patients must have had progression of disease on an AR-targeted agent as well as taxing chemotherapy, which is most likely going to be docetaxel. Um, so they do have to be in that third line setting in terms of their metastatic treatment. Um, and and I think. There are also things that we should be aware of as as clinicians that there are multiple trials that are looking to move lutetium forward in the treatment paradigm. And so if you have access to a clinical trial, that's also something really important to think about, whether it's in the pre-chemotherapy space or even in the hormone-sensitive space. There may be a trial near you that may be using lutetium and, and may be an option for your patient.
4: And Steve, if I can make one comment, as we move to these third and fourth generation agents again, as Alicia mentioned um, Yes, the germline testing is going to, te- uh, to detect BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM abnormalities, making the eligible for the PARP inhibitors. However, it's that somatic testing that will show MSH high or uh, uh, high tumor mutational burden. That is another option for patients, and that's the indication for pembrolizumab. So people don't think about pembrol, although pembrol now has about Last time I looked, 18, 20, 30, 40 different indications across all of oncology. Uh, It's widely available. But we don't tend not to think about in prostate cancer. And there are some patients at our center who had MSHI that can only be detected on somatic testing that have absolutely unbelievable responses to immunotherapy. So again, this highlights, again, the need for that somatic testing, even though if you know that there is a germline inherited mutation, because it gives the patient additional options now and probably in the future.
3: And just to follow up on that, that's gonna be about 3% of the MCRPC population. It is only identifiable on somatic testing. So, so critical to do that testing. And I would say that it's also important for us to know that BRCA1, BRCA2 alterations are going to be identified 50% of the time in germline, and 50% of the time in somatic. And so really giving our patients the opportunity to have both of these approaches will open the window perhaps to a new treatment opportunity.
1: Well, thanks to you both for highlighting that, because I think that's a point that's often overlooked, both about PEMBRO eligibility and about the, you know, if I had my germline testing, why do I need the somatic? So I think really um, leaving leaving our listeners with that as a, a, a critical take-home point about the expanding role of genetic testing in advanced prostate cancer, um, certainly something that, the, that our panel wants to emphasize. Um, but something that we've also heard kind of mentioned in passing a couple of times during the the, 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 the session today here has been bone health. Um, and 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 ADT um, related skeletal skeletal events. So, Dr. Jordan, how how and and when um, do you begin bone health management and monitoring in patients with advanced prostate cancer? Yes,
2: yeah, certainly, bone health monitoring. Uh, it's important to have the discussion early on, and these patients should have baseline testing uh, with bone density scan, DEXA scans. <clears throat> that should be repeated every one to two years once they're on androgen deprivation therapy or some of these other uh, AR inhibitors. Uh, blood tests are important to follow with calcium, creatinine, uh, vitamin D. In uh, patients uh, with, with at higher risk of, of fractures due to bone loss, uh, these kinds of preventative treatments with bisphosphonates uh, or denosumab are important and uh, monitoring, again, for osteoporosis and in those individuals is another uh, important aspect of this. So, you know, one thing I was just going to mention is certainly we we tend to focus a lot on bone health. It's a very important part of these this patient management, but one certain theme that arose at the meeting here was many of the other side effects associated with uh, chronic ADT. And and certainly there's more understanding and recognition of, of these, you know, hot flashes, uh, certainly managing those with, uh, um, fact, vinfax, I'm, I'm sorry, um, with, uh, venlafaxine let's get that one wrong and gabapentin. Um, you know, there are other side effects, fatigue, uh, metabolic syndrome. Um, but one Aspect is cardiovascular disease, and there was certainly a lot of discussion regarding uh, this. Certainly, we've known for a number of years that there increased is increased cardiovascular mortality with these GnRH agonists. Uh, one question is whether this might be as marked with these GnRH antagonists. Certainly, uh, in the HERO trial, which was looking at an oral agent, or uh, LuGalix, there was much. Greater cardiovascular mortality, uh, morbidity associated with that uh, versus uh, luprolide. But uh, one thing to realize that in these uh, trials, often the ability to recognize or compare cardiovascular safety is, these studies are not really powered for that. There was a a trial, however, addressing this and called the pronounced trial, uh, which was a randomized controlled trial looking at uh, GNRH agonists. Again, it was luprolide. Uh, versus degorelix, and they didn't really find any difference in major cardiac events between these two classes of androgen deprivation therapy. But certainly it's important for everyone to be aware of and and that starting patients on these drugs, besides bone health, uh, a comprehensive cardiovascular assessment uh, is critical. And this would include, uh, you know, blood pressure assessment, uh, lipids, uh, blood glucose and other f- features you know one thing i was just going to also mention is we have uh, here on the panel uh, an expert in this in this area in and, and cancership uh, uh, cancer survivorship uh, and dr morgan's you've talked a little bit about some of the cognitive uh, issues surrounding ADT treatment
3: yeah sure so i think You know, a few years ago, these issues were raised, whether ADT alone or perhaps ADTs in combination with other AR-targeted agents may cause cognitive change. And there have been some population-based studies that suggest there's an association. Other studies, um, particularly some from Canada, that suggest that there's no association. Uh, And really some nice work from the Moffitt team uh, suggesting even in a prospective way that there's an association. And it may be in patients who have particular genetic differences when exposed to ADT that they develop cognitive change. So I think that it's it's so important that we recognize this and 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 whether or not the ADT alone is is causing these issues to ensure that patients are identified, that we talk about this issue, that we connect patients with neurology and neurologists if if needed for a really full examination, because there are treatments that can slow the progression of things like dementia, but there are few things that can reverse it. And so that's that's going to be really important. Our team has recently published in Prostate Cancer and Prosthetic Diseases uh, a study that's looking at um, claims related to complications of, medi- of medication treatment. It's called a VIGI, Vigi-based uh, data set. And uh, what we did find is that there seemed to be a slightly increased level of cognitive type complaints associated with ADT, and perhaps even more so with certain AR-targeted agents that may compound that. Um, and so, so this is something I think that we're really going to need to continue to look for in terms of ongoing research, but also just in our clinical practices, asking the questions and connecting patients to the specialists that they need, when, if they need them.
2: Yeah, we've certainly suspected cognitive uh, issues with these uh, ADT-treated patients, and, and getting a handle on that's going to be, I think, an important area of research.
1: Yeah, it's it's really a wonderful way can highlight kind of cutting edge research. So thank you for bringing that up, Dr. Morgans. It's you know putting that into what we have in our guideline framework is really how we're going to move forward in terms of next steps in managing patients. Um, You know, just sort of staying for a minute on that that the area of um, adverse events and toxicities and bone health and whatnot. um, You know, the bone protective agents that Dr. Gerard mentioned, um, denosumab and zoledronic acid have as as a potential side effect this osteonecrosis of the jaw, which we hear about sort of non-healing bone ulcers. Um, you know, can you tell us first, Dr. Moritz, how, how do you counsel patients who are, haven't yet initiated but are going to initiate these therapies? You know, what are preventative measures? And then what do you do if somebody develops osteonecrosis of the jaw while they're on genosumab or zoledronic acid?
3: I think that's a really important topic. So thank you for bringing it up. Um, I always, and this has changed over the last decade or so, from from my practice standpoint but i always actually ask patients to see a dentist before we initiate these these treatments at this point in time these are treatments that are meant to prevent other complications and so the threshold to initiating them because they're not actively treating a problem necessarily that we have right now is is a little bit higher so i'm okay delaying that until after the patient has seen a dentist and really get some clearance meaning that the patient does not need a root canal some major dental surgery or something that would put the patient at risk for non-healing if we start a bisphosphonate or denosimab, the risk of ONJ is actually relatively low. It's really low. Um, It's lower even than things like hypocalcemia. So I think it's important for us to recognize that it's there and to act on things like bone pain quickly, but it's not something that should prohibit us, I think, from using bone health agents, which we know can prevent complications like fracture that can be a major cause of morbidity and increased mortality in this patient population. Finally, to your point about, you know, how do we act on this issue if if it becomes an issue? If a patient has any pain in the jaw, anything going on that they say, you know, it's just a Little bit of discomfort I, I make sure that we either connect with their dental team or get a get a panic get get a, a view of the jaw because this is something that you want to very urgently get them into dental care for and would not want to continue treatments with things like denosumab or zologdroonic acid if there is something going on it absolutely needs to be evaluated quickly
1: thank you so we'll we'll, we'll finish in our last few minutes in, in talking about sort of issues that I would kind of broadly considered related to barriers of care delivery. Um, so, so you know, Dr. Gerard, you know, increased attention has been directed towards what we call financial toxicity in advanced prostate cancer. There's been some, some work on this even at this meeting. Um, you know, going forward, even as new agents that we heard about this morning, lutetium continue to enter the landscape, new imaging modalities, um, and even as existing agents expand in their indications, how do you see the financial toxicity um, and I guess you can even look at it both at a patient and even a health system level um, impacting the, the, these therapies and their utilization.
2: Yes, I mean, access and cost are potential concerns for the widespread adoption of a lot of these new uh, imaging agents and a lot of these new drugs. You know, we're, we're going to have to be able to show that these combination therapies, you know, improve quality of life, quantity of life. Obviously, as we talk about treatment intensification, uh, value is going to be important. And ultimately, this is a new era we're entering into, and we need to bring our our insurance colleagues along with us to make sure they're aware of these changes and uh, help us uh, manage our patients with these. You know, I'd also say that this is obviously a challenge that running an advanced prostate cancer uh, uh, practice that uh, we need to be increasingly aware of. And, and as urologists uh, enter more into this area, uh, this is something our medical oncology colleagues have been dealing with for quite a few years, but it's an area that you do need to be adept at, at uh, uh, understanding what's going on.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, and certainly this is going to continue to evolve as, as our therapies do as well. Um, you know, Dr. Morgan, you, you've very nicely highlighted a different disease state's how you make these balanced decisions about next step in care. And a lot of it um, has to do with, with presentation de novo or, or, or progressive um, burden of disease, but, but where does or, or the assessment of patient comorbidity status fit in and how do, you, how do you make that assessment really in a quantitative way, if at all possible?
3: Sure. So I think, you know, comorbidities certainly come into play when we're trying to prescribe medications and they come up, they, they flash up from the pharmacy as a drug drug interaction. So so they come up in a very real and very um, blatant way when when that happens. But when that's not happening I think that we don't necessarily always think about or ask about some of the other complications that the patient or comorbidities that the patient may be dealing with and I think we need to so things like heart failure and cardiovascular disease should absolutely be discussed and when we have options to potentially get a patient in to see a cardiologist a cardio oncologist I think that's really important when patients are on ADT or 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 a number of any number of other agents related to treatment with prostate cancer because their cardiovascular risk factors are going to be affected in most cases by exposure to ADT and and reversible risk factors can, addressing those reversible risk factors through cardiology or primary care can improve their quality of life, but also really reduce their cardiovascular risk, which is the main competing comorbidity for these patients. Otherwise, I think that it's important for us to just look through their other complications, their other issues. Maybe they have hypertension and we need to avoid certain AR targeted agents. Maybe they have heart failure and we need to avoid certain AR targeted agents. Uh, So thinking through all of this, encouraging our patients to exercise, to have good dietary habits, is really the way that we treat the whole patient. So um, so really something that we should try to do, if not at every visit, at every other visit, uh, or just take a look at that list of comorbidities and and pick out one or two that you're going to focus on for the visit that the patient's coming for follow-up and make sure the patient's doing okay.
1: Yeah, that's a really nice outline of that, and, and I think does emphasize for each other and for our, our listeners the importance of, of thinking about the whole patient and, and how our treatments do in, impact their other medical conditions. Dr. Camelo, we'll give you the last word here this, today. Um, you know, As we wrap up, what, what do you see as the next key steps of investigation um, in looking at, at, at you know the need to further enhance evaluation and management for patients with advanced prostate cancer?
4: So, I think really again i'm a as you know, a big proponent of team integration uh multidisciplinary care, I think is really something very important, and uh, we recognize that you know there's many different types of multidisciplinary care there's the real time, as Alicia mentioned, when you're all there at the same time, there's treatment maps that everybody agrees to certain treatments or tumor boards. So I think as we get more and more involved with radio nucleo you know radio pharmaceuticals uh the options for genetic testing new and potentially more complicated treatments of advanced prostate cancer with lutetium i think really this concept of us coming together as groups and teams to manage the patients cardio oncologists as alicia mentioned endocrinologists i mean we really got to think as you mentioned steve about the whole patient i think multidisciplinary care is here and really needs to be focused on in the future. No longer is ATT, as was mentioned, the standard of care giving uh, an LHRH, an analog, uh, no longer cuts it. You've got to do more comprehensive care for patients.
1: Well, I think that's a, a really, really nice and great um, last message to, to, to leave us with. So so I will say, Dr. Gamalas, Morgans, and Gerard, thank you for your time um, today to discuss this, this very important uh, topic for our patients. Thank you. Thank you.